Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Mishpatim this morning. We are in the book of Exodus. We are at um, what is known as uh, the book of the covenant. So we are uh, at material that is legal in nature. Uh, often it is called the first law code that we have in Torah. Um, it is a bit of a misnomer because a law code is comprehensive. So a code of law would cover everything from marriage and divorce and um, all kinds of other situations that every single human being could expect or most human beings could expect to engage in, and it would be comprehensive. That is not the case with the Book of the Covenant that we have, Sefer Habrit. It is not a complete law code. Um, if you look at the JPS, uh, you know, translation of the and commentary on the Torah, which I use, uh, there's a whole excursus in the back uh, that has to do with biblical and ancient Near Eastern law. If you're interested in this, it's a really fascinating, a really fascinating um, for some of us <laughs> area is how this material in Torah, how it uh, coincides with, or how it compares to ancient Near Eastern law that we have that is very similar very, very similar. The, the law that we have from the ancient Near East, we have about six really good examples. The one that you will know of is the Code of Hammurabi, right? Um, and that is in the Louvre in Paris, uh, but comes from the ancient Near East and uh, predates this material that we have. Um, and the Code of Hammurabi, like many of the law codes, Lipit Ishtar and lots of the other ones that we have from the ancient Near East, they are written very much like these Torah laws in that they are the casuistic style, meaning if such and so, then such and so. That is how this code of law is written, as are these other codes of law that we have found, much of them with a long prologue and uh, an epilogue, just like we have. And we uh, have, um, in the, in, in this, just like in the Torah, just like in this uh, collection of laws, it is assumed that there is a law code that these written laws are coming to reform. This is not a full law code, nor are the other collections we found like the, like the ones of Hammurabi. They are understood by scholars of, of ancient Near Eastern law to be reforms on a code of law that would have been oral and would have been known and would have been familiar uh, to leaders uh, in the community, and that these are coming in some way to reform those laws, and they are written down uh, in there, if X, then Y. So in these law codes, it is very clear that the law issues from the king, and that the king is a gracious, wonderful, and wise king for giving these laws. And um, and it is understood that these laws are come, all of them, all of most of them, some of them, some of them were missing big pieces of it because the conquering king 
uh, smashed the steel, uh, S-T-E-L-E, smashed the steel that it was written on. And we've lost many paragraphs of of many of these collections. Uh, So we don't have the whole thing often. Um, But from what we have, it is often stated that this is coming uh, in order to establish truth and righteousness in the land. Tzedakah ve'emet might be the Hebrew. So it is coming in all of these cases from the king in order to establish righteousness and truth in the land. And in one of them, uh, the king goes so far as to say that he declares that he has restored domestic tranquility. Sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) Schoolhouse rock? Ensure domestic tranquility. Oh, oh, I went for yeah. some bite. Oh, for the common defense. Okay, so the right a preamble to the Constitution. Um, very similar, right? The idea that these laws are promulgating dom- domestic tranquility. So there's often rulings on marriage, divorce, uh, the status of slaves. Um, a lot of them are hyper-concerned with private property. One of them, one of these ancient law codes goes so far as to have serious, serious punishment, including capital punishment for uh, issues related to private property. Uh, And the other thing that you should know about these, that's kind of a specific thing is that in, in several of these, the, the social, standing, meaning the, you know, like a very stratified class system, the social standing of the people involved influences in many of these cases, influences what the punishment or consequences are for different acts. So if you're a noble person and you're involved in a case with a peasant, then, and their language would be different. I'm just using language that's familiar to us and you're involved in a case uh, against a peasant, that matters in some of these law codes about what the consequences uh, and, and, uh, and punishments and or payments are going to be. That is all very important to know just because we're going to be talking about Torah law and how Torah law is similar and how Torah law difference, uh, is different from this. And I'm doing all of this on purpose before we get to the text. Because the text itself is not fascinating. <laughs> the text itself is not, it's not so like captivating and interesting that we would talk about it like forever and ever and ever outside of the context of what's going on. Like wh- why we're seeing this, what we're seeing, how does that differ or how is it the same uh, from the ancient Near Eastern context? That, that to me is what's often most interesting. Um, for Bert, obviously, the laws themselves are going to be the most interesting and what Israel has to say about this and Israel has to say about that. So wherever your interest lies, great. And I'm going to wander us into eventually. So the lawyers, you get excited first. Uh, but eventually, I want to take us a little off the topic of the actual law. And I want to look at the, the what Torah is prescribing as kind of an attitude, if you will, of compassion uh, and I want to talk about that for a little while. And then, so our, our psychologists, psychiatrists, sociologists, all y'all can get excited about that. So hopefully there's something for everybody uh, here today. But I want to I spend a little more time talking about 
the, the covenant as Israel understood it. And this is really the topic, the special topic of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, who's one of our great teachers, a modern Orthodox teacher. Uh, I would call him conservadox because um, he acknowledges the evolution of the law through the oral law, meaning he believes that God intended for the law to continue to be explicated and reformed, if you will, through, uh, through human engagement with it as our understanding of things change. But I want to look at Yitz Greenberg's understanding of, um, of covenant, because I think it, 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 it delineates for us a little differently what these laws are about. In the ancient system, it is to bring righteousness, justice, and truth to the land, and it is brought by the monarch. The monarch assumes full credit for the the understanding of justice and righteousness and how how it is achieved through adjudication and through um, these examples of law. But Yitz Greenberg helps lift up what's different and what's different in the Israel, the Israelite law code is, of course, that these laws do not originate in the king. They do not originate in Moses, the prophet. They originate in the divine, in God. That God is the source. God is the authority. God is the adjudicator. God is the one who understands that this is the way to bring righteousness, truth, and justice. Um, so Brian is lifting up the law, the law of Talion, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Tevye says we'd all be blind and toothless. Correct. Talion is not an eye for an eye. That is not what it means. We know that. We've studied that. We've looked at that. You know, that is part of this, you know, idea of law and justice and righteousness. It does not mean you take out someone's eye if they injure your eye. We know that. Okay. So let's go to Yitz Greenberg. Let's go to him talking a little bit because I think it makes a huge difference that our law code is is from the divine and not from a human king. That makes a huge difference. But but what is the relationship between this deity of the Israelites, this Yod Vavhe business, coming to be in relationship with Israel through law? What what's the connection? What what does that say about the relationship. So, so let's go to Yitz Greenberg. So this is a wonderful article. If you don't know the source, Hadar is a wonderful, wonderful uh, resource. Hadar has um, many, many great teachings. It's a, uh, a center uh, for study and it has also amazing music and, and other things. So you should definitely check out Hadar and um, they're all available as podcasts. And then you can also download the, the actual PDF. All right. So this is Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, uh, an amazing scholar and Jewish thinker. Uh, uh, and this, like I said, this is his topic. This is his baby. Covenant is his baby. That's how he understands Judaism writ large is absolutely a covenantal relationship. And that that is how you really come to the heart of everything about Judaism, the Jewish tradition and the Jewish people. So, so this is kind of, I love this because this is kind of in, in short, his understanding of covenant when it's really his whole body of work, but this kind of boils it down for us. So what is the covenant method? We think we understand what covenant means. <clears throat> we do not really. We know it means an agreement. 
whatever, and that, that there are terms involved. And what we're looking at in Parshat Mishpatim are terms. But I really want to go into what Yitz Greenberg understands as the method of covenant. What is it really? God recruits human beings to become allies. This is the heart of covenantal relationship. God recruits human beings, and that means all human beings. If you look at the laws of Noah, God recruits humanity to become allies and later full partners in repairing the world. There are extensive footnotes here, so I'm not going to go into it because if you want to spend time with it on your own, which I highly recommend, you can look at all the footnotes and, and what he, where he's drawing this from and what it means. He has long footnotes sometimes. It's really beautiful, beautiful stuff. At Sinai, the Jewish people were established as lead partners and ultimately ambassadors to the world in this process of redemption. How are we ambassadors? Just think of the words of the prophet, a light unto the nations. It was not ever meant to be exclusive of other peoples. We were supposed to be the ambassadors to show people the way. And if you look at the end of Aleinu, by Yom Hahu on that day, what's going to happen? Adonai Echad, Ushmo Echad. There will be one God, and the name of God will be one. All people were supposed to eventually recognize Yud Vavhe as divinity and to accept the understanding of how to live in righteousness and, and right relationship with that deity that was supposed to be universal is a large part of. Um, of a lot of people's understandings of what the Israelite stuff was originally about. The messianic vision includes filling the earth with life and repairing the world so as to overcome all enemies of life, such as poverty, oppression, war, and sickness. So that's the ultimate goal is the messianic age, right? The, 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 the whole goal is to bring the world to the point of redemption, which is the messianic vision where everyone lives, you know, healthy and there's no class divisions, there's no war, there's no, right, there's, there's no junk that, are, that is the enemy of life. The utopian total transformation of nature and history, how is that to be realized? So what's the plan? Here's the vision. How do we get there? It will be realized through a pragmatic, human-centered, real-life process. The essence of this paradoxical method, uh, what's that, is to start by affirming the value of the real world as it is. This is critical to a covenantal theology. You affirm the value of the real world as it is, meaning with war and poverty and rape and orphans and terrible torture and theft, you affirm the value of the real world as it is and the importance of living in it. We do not have monasteries in ancient Israel or any other time in Israelite history, unless you want to talk about the zealots, uh, you know, that's a Quran, that's a whole nother thing, but affirming the value of the real world as it is and the importance of living in that world. Because there ain't another one yet. Yet is the important word. But there's not another world. There's only this one. So when people say, how can there be slaves? How can there be laws about slaves in the Torah? Because what Yitz Greenberg argues is the whole idea of covenant has to start in the world that is. 
And that means a world that has slavery as one of its economic underpinnings, period. No explanation needed, period. You can't start with a world that isn't. So we affirm the value of the world as it is, the importance of living in it at the same time. The covenant focuses on the future ideal world. Participants commit to move the present status quo toward that desired ideal state. Okay, so we accept the world as it is, the value of living in the world as it is. What is the ideal of covenant? To move, to focus on the ideal world and the people who accept the covenant, living into the covenant, what does that achieve? It moves the present status quo toward the desired ideal. Okay, we clear on that? Nod, if we're clear. Okay, how will this be done? This will be done by upgrading conditions, step by step, bringing improvements while affirming human dignity, even of proponents of the status quo, right? So what does that mean? That means we want to upgrade conditions even while people are still voting for certain people who love the status quo and don't want to see any improvement in areas that Torah cares about, right? You still acknowledge the dignity of those people, the proponents of the status quo, even as we try to move it towards the ideal. The divine sets goals, instructs, inspires, and judges but the human partner must actively participate in the process or the desired outcome will not happen. God is not going to do this for humanity is the argument of covenant that we are partners. The divine is not going to insert itself and make these things happen right away. Rather accepting the world as it is, affirming the value of the world as it is, living in the world as it is, we agree to behave in certain ways so that we might in every aspect of our lives help move the world towards the ideal of the divine. What we have in Torah are the earliest understandings of where the world is at, and how we might begin moving it towards the ideal, Yitz Greenberg would argue. But as you move to a society without slavery, right, then then those laws don't apply anymore. But we might take the, the underpinning, the ideal, the value of the laws about slavery and apply them to something else. But we were supposed to continue to engage with this legal corpus through the oral tradition in such a way, would argue Yitz Greenberg, that it starts to respond more and more and more to the world. Well, I should say continues. It continues to respond to the world as it is. That hopefully changes over time so that you don't need these laws about slaves because slavery is gone. You won't need so many laws about the poor because we will be in a time where we've moved the world towards more social and economic equity. But, but Torah law has to start where the world is. The other uh, piece that is important is that he writes, the book of the covenant is a first sketch 
of how to live by covenantal guidelines when the Israelites settle down in a reclaimed homeland. All right. So that means every aspect of society will be transformed into the eventual kingdom of God so that human life is treated as of infinite value, equal and unique. Every aspect will be will be covered by the law. Every aspect will be transformed. So now we're going to actually look at the at the text. So remember what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a set of laws originating in the divine that are given to human beings living in the world as it is, asking them to continue to live in the world as it is and move that world towards the ideal. So, Carol Kleinman, when you see something alarming in these laws, please understand it is addressing the world as it is for the Israelites, trying to look towards a way that might be better. All right. So the stuff that that is insulting and alarming to us that we see in the Torah text, you have to assume there's something worse that's gone on before this, that whatever we're looking at is a reform. Whatever we're looking at is an improvement on what was before this. So in our modern contemporary sensibilities, we might be horrified by some of these laws that you're like, how could God have written this? So if you accept covenant as God addresses the world as it is, it makes sense. If you think of God giving us Torah as giving us the already perfected ideal society, that is not what's going on. That is not what's happening. We we have to participate in order for it to be the perfect legal system for the perfect human society of justice and equity and compassion and um, all of that. All right. We're starting at the triennial division. 21, 22. So here we're going to get if, then, if, then, if, then, if, then. Okay. When, if men fight and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results and no other damage ensues, the one responsible shall be fined according to the woman's husband, what he may exact from him, the payment to be based on reckoning. But if other damage ensues, the penalty penalty shall be life for life. So those of you who are getting really alarmed by this, know that this is what we quote when we want to say abortion is not murder. Abortion is not murder. The fetus is not considered a person. If the fetus were considered a person, when men fight and the fetus is killed in the process and there's a miscarriage, the person would be put to death because it would be understood to be murder, right? So it's not, according to Torah, the fetus is considered to be part of the woman, of her body. Therefore, just like any other time she might be injured, whoever's fault it is has to pay the husband for damage to his wife, right? We shouldn't be shocked that this is the ancient worldview. We're not shocked by this, I hope, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Like we said, it does not mean you put out someone's eye. It means you pay damages to the cost of what it would be for someone losing an eye. 
we do not, it is, does not mean you literally cut off someone's foot if your foot is ruined in, in an altercation. All right. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. Now, some people might be horrified. Oh, my God, they're slaves and slaves get hurt by the master. Guess what, people? That's what happens. That's what happens. That's the world as it is in the ancient Near East. Torah is coming to say you don't get to to do something like this as a master to a slave. And expect to keep that slave. You can't. This is a threat to the master. If you do things that physically injure your slaves, you lose the right to, to their labor. They, they have to be set free. If you knock out the tooth of a slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. Do you think any of this applied in the American slave system? Any of it? You could hang your slave from a tree. You could beat your slave to death and nobody cared. And if they did care, didn't matter. It was your property. Not so with Torah law about slavery. So we, we must assume that Torah is coming to rectify with, with this law something that was happening that Torah wasn't didn't want to be happening, right? If most of these laws, if we... Except even if you don't, even if you accept, okay, this is the law, it's just given. Clearly, we can assume this was happening in the ancient world. And Torah is coming to say, you can't do that. You can't hit your slave hard enough that you knock out a tooth. If you do, they go free. Let me tell you how many women in this country and children live in a home where they are routinely hit hard enough to lose a tooth. Do you think that they are removed from that house and given a home and, and, and established and given some money to start a new life? Absolutely not. They somehow ask for it. They deserve it. Or it's none of our business. Torah says, yes, it is our business. What happens in someone's home, particularly to the slave who doesn't have access to kin and other folk who can come uh, take care of things on their behalf. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox is not to be punished. Okay, hang on, but this is related to the next law. If, however, that ox has been in the habit of goring and its owner, though warned, has failed to guard it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner, too, shall be put to death. So how many of you know of a dog that bites somebody? right? So the dog is put down because it's just not right. Dogs don't bite people. If a dog bites a person, something's wrong with the dog. Either it got made that way by humans torturing it or something's just off enough that the dog has to be put down. That makes sense. But the owner is not punished unless the dog has bitten before and then kills a toddler. Then what happens? The dog is put down and so is the owner subject to capital punishment, which makes complete and total sense because it means you are responsible. You know your animal is dangerous. It's done this before and you didn't do anything about it. So in that case, the owner is responsible for the damage, ah, which in this case is death. And we know if you cause death, 
if you're responsible for death, then you are subject to capital punishment. If the ox scores a slave, male or female, he shall pay 30 shekels of silver to the master and the ox shall be stoned. So you can see this is the only place in Torah where the punishment is changed by the social status of the person involved, the victim, in this case, a slave. So the slave is valued in terms of the penalty less than the the Israelite. Dare I close this? Yes. Okay. When a man uh, when a man's ox injures his neighbor's ox and it dies, they shall sell the live ox and divide its price. They shall also divide the dead animal. If it was in the habit of goring, its owners failed to guard it. He must restore ox for ox, but shall keep the dead animal. When a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox, four for the sheep. Um, so th- this is all this is all property, right? This this is laws about property. We could spend time on them if we want, but I don't think these are the most fascinating ones to us. If the thief is seized while tunneling and he's beaten to death, there is no blood guilt in his case. Remember, you if somebody kill somebody, then their family can come after them uh, and kill them, which is the case of blood guilt. But if a thief is tunneling and and is is beaten in the cause of, of perpetrating that crime, there is no blood guilt. If the sun has risen on him, there is blood guilt. In that case, he must make restitution. If he lacks the means, he, he shall be sold for his theft. So that's if he survives. But whatever he stole is found alive in his possession. He shall pay double. When a man lets his livestock loose to graze in another's land, blah, blah, blah. When a fire is started, when a man gives money for safekeeping, blah, blah, blah. You can see what the, these are still all about property. And when people had animals as their you know, main source of like, an, uh, you know, an ox was a tractor, essentially, right? And so um, th- so this, these are important laws, you know, in terms of, you know, h- how you deal with injury to property. Sorry, this keeps on wanting to open commentary for me because it thinks I want it. Um, if a man seduces a virgin for whom the bride price has not been paid and lies with her, he must make her his wife by payment of a bride price. Of course, we as modern women say that's disgusting, Right. What if I'm kind of forced into it as a 14 year old? You're going to tell me that you're going to protect me by having me marry the perpetrator. Oh, yay. Isn't that exciting? But we can assume since she's not a virgin anymore, she's ruined. She's ruined for marriage. We can assume because this law is here that that meant that women, young women who were seduced because virgins would be young women that were seduced were then trash to be left by the side of the road. This says you cannot do that. You have to make her a wife. If her father refuses to give her, he must still weigh out silver in accordance with the bride price for virgins. So the father can say, absolutely not. We're not marrying her into this family. He's an oaf. He's a loser. Forget about it. He's terrible. Then the, the, the offending family still has to pay the bride price for virgins, right? So she, so her family still receives the money that would have been given had she been married as a virgin to someone. You shall not tolerate a sorceress. Torah is very, very, very clear about all kinds of sorcery and, and uh, those things that would be involved with idolatry, bestiality, 
Um, one shall be put to death for bestiality. Whoever sacrifices to a god other than yud heh vav right? That's really bad, right? Really, really bad. And here, here we come to the stuff Bert Kleinman loves. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And this is why I want to go later a little bit um, about these kinds of laws that Torah uh, is getting at. You shall not ill treat any widow or orphan. So because these laws are here, because we can assume that they are reforms of some kind, we must also assume that strangers were being oppressed. And we must assume that widows and orphans were being mistreated, that they were being, uh, what do you call it? Exploited, right? Um, Because they had nobody to protect them. In the ancient world, the, the orphan and the widow were the most vulnerable. An orphan does not mean you don't have a mother. Orphan means you don't have a father to or uncles to protect you. Having a mother doesn't mean anything because she's as vulnerable as you are. So the widow and the orphan means the widow and, and the orphan, people who don't have a man or men to protect them. If you do mistreat them, what's going to happen? Im we know about sa'aka. If they do a sa'aka, a lie, shamoa eshma, I will sow hear their cry. I will weigh hear their cry. And we know what happens when God hears the cry of the vulnerable and the mistreated. We know what happens, don't we? Yeah, it's not good. What will happen? My anger will blaze forth and I will put you to the sword and your own wives shall become widows and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, do not act toward them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. So you can lend money to the poor. You should lend money to the poor, but you may not make money off the poor. If you charge them interest, what happens? They are driven further into debt. By the way, for some bizarre reason, the church understood itself as the new Israel and picked this law as one that was still binding on them as the new Israel. Therefore, they could not, they felt they were not allowed to charge money to other members of the church at interest. What did that mean? A noble wants to start a war against another noble. They need to borrow the money to hire the, the, the soldiers to do that. They can't borrow from another Christian. Who did they borrow from then? They borrowed from Jews who became bankers. They borrowed from the Jews. This is why Jews became bankers. This is how Jews became bankers, in case we're not clear. The church the could word, not lend the word bank means, means bench in, in Yiddish. It's where the Jews sat on the bench and uh, you know, loaned money. So that's how and why the Jews come to loan money as their profession, because it was one of the few ways they could make money. You weren't allowed in the in the medieval system. You weren't allowed to own land. You weren't allowed to be in any of the guilds. So you couldn't be uh, an executive in the military. So what are you going to do? If you could lend money at interest, that was one way. Of course, it also got you killed often because when that noble lost the war and now owed the Jews money, what did you do? You made a nice big old pogrom 
on that Jew's village and destroy them. And now you don't owe money anymore. All right. You couldn't charge interest, but you could loan someone money and you're not stupid. So you need to take something and pledge. So they give you their favorite gold pocket watch. Well, what if they're super poor and all they have literally are the clothes on their back? Well, you can take their cloak as a pledge, but you have to give it back to them at sunset because that's what people wrapped themselves in when they didn't have money. They had a cloak that they wore uh, and then they slept in it at night. That was essentially their sleeping bag. So you can take the sleeping bag during the day as a pledge for the loan, but you can't keep it overnight when they need it to sleep in it. It is his only clothing, the sole covering for his skin. In what else shall he sleep? Therefore, if he cries out to me, I will pay heed for, and this is where I want to go again, I am compassionate. Chanun ani. Chanun is from the word chen, which means grace. That's the best English translation of chen is grace. We think of this as a Christian word. It is not a Christian word. It is a Jewish word. I mean, grace may be a, a Christian word, but chen, that concept of grace is Jewish. You will not revile God nor put a curse upon the chieftain uh, of your people. You shall not put off the skimming of the first field of your vats. You shall give me the firstborn among your sons. Later, we're going to see that the firstborn are replaced by the Leviim, as we're going to see in the book of Leviticus. You shall do the same with your cattle, your flocks. Seven days it shall remain with its mother, because that's the right thing to do. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. You shall be holy to me. You must not eat flesh. So what is, what is one definition of what does it mean to be Anshe Kodesh? Holy people, you do not eat flesh torn by beasts in the field. Trefa, literally torn, right? Um, and this is still what we use for the word uh, in Yiddish for food that is not kosher. It is treif. It is torn. And a mind that is torn, right, makes you crazy. Metuaf, crazy. All right. You shall cast it to the dog. So you can feed it to other animals, but you can't eat it yourself. You shall not carry false rumors. You shall not join hands with the guilty to act as a malicious witness. You shall neither side with the mighty to do wrong. You shall not give perverse testimony in a dispute so as to pervert it in favor of the mighty. Nor shall you show deference to a poor man in his dispute. When you, <clears throat> when you encounter your enemy's ox or ass wandering, you must take it back to him. Because what, what is your tendency going to be? What are you going to want to do? You see the, the beast of your enemy wandering around? Maybe y'all are different from me. But the temptation is, oh, there goes so-and-so's cow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Nope, you have to take it back to them. And when you see the ass of your enemy lying under its burden and would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it with him. You see your enemy with a flat tire, you have to stop and help. Change the tire. But actually, this is as much about the, the chamor, about the, about the ass as anything, right? It's not the ass didn't do anything. Why should it lay there, you know, crushed under a burden? You have to help lift it. You shall not subvert the rights of your needy and their disputes. 
Keep far from a false charge. Do not bring death on those who are innocent and in the right, for I will not acquit the wrongdoer. Do not take bribes, for bribes blind the clear-sighted and upset the pleas of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let the needy among your people eat of it, that they shall and, and what they leave, let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor in order that your ox and your ass may rest and that your bondman and the stranger may be refreshed. I read a very interesting article preparing for y'all for today. I read a very interesting article that says this is not Shabbat. Shabbat was something different. That this originally was just every seventh day you let everybody rest and you let your animals rest and you let the stranger living with you rest and your slaves rest because that's a good thing to do. But this was not actually Shabbat. Shabbat was a uh, full moon festival. Very interesting article. All right. Be on guard concerning all that I have told you. Make no mention of the names of other gods. They shall not be heard on your lips. This is why you will never hear an Orthodox Jew say Jesus Christ in response to something ever. You were not allowed. When I was growing up, we were not allowed to say JC. We were not allowed to say Jesus or Christ um, at all, because you are not to have the name of other gods on your lips. So some people take that quite literally. Um, Three times a year, you shall hold a festival. Then we get the festivals. Um, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened and the fat of my feastal offering shall not, shall not be left until the morning choice fruits of your soil. Uh, So we, we see, we see the variety of, of, um, of laws and stuff here. Yeah. All right. I think I'm going to stop because I think we get an idea. We get a flavor of the law. I want us to talk a little bit more on uh, a bit of a higher level looking from 30,000 feet. All right. So we, we, we can take things pretty literally. We can take all of these, uh, all of these laws pretty literally don't take a bribe like, well, duh. Right. Because it perverts the cause of justice. If I take money, like how can I, how can I expect to render a fair judgment? But the Talmud and many of our Midrashim goes way further in terms of um, taking these and, and extending them to be guidance about how to live in general and how to behave morally and ethically and what are good habits and what are really bad habits. Before I go there, Mark, what did you want to say? We have to unmute them. Um, just that... Uh, um in general, all of this uh, is uh, could easily have been written by any developmental psychologist. Uh, I mean, it is uh, it's just a- astonishing to me uh, how how clear it is uh, in um, in psychoanalytic terms, in Kleinian terms. Uh, it seems that we're talking about the movement from a paranoid schizoid position to a depressive position, that is a position of a realistic relationship to the other. So say, say a little bit more about going from the paranoid to the depressed. What, 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 where's that movement here? 
Um, well, uh, for, for a particular psychoanalytic theorist, Melanie Klein, um, her way of understanding the uh, development was that uh, uh, developmentally, people move from a very early position, very early in life, where uh, their, their perception of themselves and the other, the outer world, other people, is uh, split into what is good and what is bad, what is gratifying and what is not gratifying. And only slowly over time do those macular images come together and fuse to form the capacity both for realistic perception and empathy with the other. And what she means by the depressive position is a recognition of the subjectivity of the other and the the possibility that the other can be hurt. And that's just a fundamental psychoanalytic notion. And I think it's a fundamental notion in all of developmental psychology. And this seems to me to be a very specific, um, uh, culturally embedded at a particular time uh, expression of that. And, uh, And then... The something that I think is also extremely relevant is the um, movement from the concrete to the abstract, so that this uh, this applies then to society, to people in general, to one's general behavior, not just the relationship between oneself and a particular other. Thank you, Mark. Um... What you've explicated on the personal level, you know, like like what what people do uh, and how they develop, you know, I think Yitz Greenberg would argue that's exactly the point to move that to the national level, right? To move that to how does Israel evolve out of the world that it's been in and the world that it's exposed to? How does it begin to take seriously the other, how the other feels? You know, how, how the other might experience these things. And then how do we create a response to that that is one of respect, right? That's not just about me, not just about how I perceive it, but about how the other experiences this. And in particular, how the vulnerable experience it, who in other cases in neighboring communities and probably, you know, maybe even in you know earlier Israelite community, were not treated that way, right? They were treated as I get to do what I want because I have the power to do that and this makes me happy. Right. right. Or, or, or you make me mad good. as my slave. I get to hit you as hard as I want to because that makes me feel better. Right. It, it, I can release my anger on you right. or to a, you know, a woman. I can take advantage of you if I want, because that feels good to me in the moment. And exactly. the, right, the Torah is coming to say, like, you, no, <laughs> like you don't get to do that because that's that's what Yitz Greenberg would, would understand is moving closer to the ideal in your business's language. It might be, you know, maturation, you know, taking responsibility and maturing and developing as a human being. And Yitz Greenberg wants to see that, that, that that's what's happening for Israel vis-a-vis the divine that they're developing and we're expected to continue to develop, which is, I, I like that way of, of talking about why Talmud and Midrash and the oral law and the explication of these laws remains so important in the tradition is because they didn't stop here. The rabbis continue to understand these as how do we challenge ourselves to take that law seriously today as a, as a community or as an individual, right? Not just here's what it meant and that's immediately what it means and that's it. It's no, 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 no. Like 
yeah, we developed to where, okay, you can't punch a slave because you feel like it. But what, what else, what else might that mean? And for the rabbis, they take it very seriously that there's still what for us to learn today, to apply it to our lives today, to develop today, that's past that original intent of the law. Right. right? That you can't just punch somebody because you feel like it because they pissed you off and you can because um, you have the power. That um, how, how do we, so the rabbis might say, and I'm making this up completely, but in the Talmud, it might be a discussion that evolves into, so you can't throw somebody a really vicious look in a meeting when you're running the meeting and you don't like what they say. Mm-hmm. That's the equivalent of punching a slave's tooth out, right? right. I mean, and so, and so they took it very seriously is how do we apply this today? Because I don't know about y'all, but I've run a few meetings where I have thrown a look at somebody And I knew when I did it, it was wrong, right? I knew I was using my power as the convener of that conversation to say, what you just said is stupid and irritating. You are stupid and irritating. Like that's what, that's so hurtful and it's an abuse of our power and abuse of our authority. And that's how the tradition takes these things seriously in terms of our, our continuing to use them to um, develop. So uh, David, then Judith, then Alex. Amy, I've always understood that this movement from the literal interpretation, eye for an eye, really evolved with the rabbis, uh, possibly in the Babylonian era, which meant hundreds of years have elapsed. I mean, can you help me understand if you were leading the meeting with a bunch of rabbis around the table saying, look, we've got these laws, they're clear, they're from God, but we can't live with them. How, what, that, that's quite a notion to change and make that adaptable to sort of society so society functions. I've never understood how they got to that point. Because from very early on, they, the rabbis accepted the idea because it served their purpose, I think. <laughs> they accepted the idea that the oral law was given to Moshe at the same time as the written law. So that is a great way to cover your evolving tush. This originated in the divine, but so did the explication of it that was given to Moses. And Moses passed it down to Joshua and Joshua to the elders, the elders to the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, right? So, so it goes down through the generations so that the rabbis who have authority are considered to have gotten that authority at Sinai. What they say the law means was given at Sinai. Now, we don't have to do that. God made a mistake. No, God is going to, God knows that at some point there isn't going to be slavery. So that law won't really matter. But what if it, what if it means the, the abject poor who are, who you might as well call slaves in terms of what they get to control in their life, that that understanding, expanding the understanding, drawing closer to the ideal, Yitz Greenberg would say, is already given at Sinai. We don't need that. Yitz Greenberg doesn't need it to be authoritative from Sinai. What Yitz Greenberg would say is God gave us the capacity to understand the ideal that these laws are pointing to and gave us the ability to then figure out what that means vis-a-vis the law for today, for now. And that that is the basis of covenant. 
that God trusts human beings to take these laws and ideals and translate them to their own time so that the rabbis would know, can you run a microwave oven with meat and then put a milk thing in there? Well, that's not given on Sinai. Like there's, that's nowhere in the law, right? So can you eat a cheeseburger, right? All of that, that is humans taking the original law and expanding and expounding on it. And, and, and I want to stay with Greenberg because I really like his, I think he's right spot on in terms of how the covenant's been understood, by, especially by the rabbis, that God gave human beings the capacity and the power by entering voluntarily into a covenant with us, gave us the authority to interpret these laws. Okay, that, who did I say was, but thank you, David, for the question. Who's next was Judith. What has amazed me from the time I converted 60-something years ago is how the laws and the information given us thousands of years ago is so relevant when so many of the other civilizations have died off. We've lost a lot of what they had to say. But the laws given in this covenant, uh, in the in the commandments, in the Torah, were so carefully thought out that, that they're eternal. They evolve, but they're eternal. And how did how did these people know? It's just a wonder to me how this has lasted. One of the ways it's lasted is because we accept the rabbinic tradition, right? That's yes. Who cares about an ox goring? No. Nobody. But, but I do we care about, about a dog that bites a child, right? Yes. So, so what is that, though? That's a move from the ideal, which is you are responsible for the behavior of the, the animals in your care, right? To we don't have oxen anymore, but we have dogs, right? Or fill it, whatever it is, a horse that kicks somebody in the head. Right. So, um, so what's my point? So my point is they didn't care about dogs. No. Right? But, but they cared have, about responsibility. Right. So we have taken the core of those laws, the ideals and morals that they are representing, and we've accepted the idea of covenant, that our job is to continue to bring them into contemporary life. That's how they've survived. Well, the fact that we can ask questions, that we can question what was. We're expected to. Yes. We're expected to engage with them. Hooray expected to explicate that we're expected to continue to expand and expound on our understanding of what the divine intent might be here. If you want to accept the divine authorship of this, we don't need to accept divine authorship. I think to, to say, you know, what would the divine, if we're living in line with justice, equity, righteousness, goodness, compassion, what would that call forth from me? What would I be obligated to do? The ideals of these still ring true because it's written by human beings. It's but written this by is unique. human beings who are this living in human society. There's no difference between them and us. None. Mark got to the point that we as a society and as individuals can develop and grow, but our innate desire to smack the crap out of somebody who has pissed <laughs> us off has not changed. Right. Our ability to hold that and check our behavior and stop it and say, wait, does this live? Is this in line with who I want to be and the values I want to live into? 
right? That can develop. But, but these people were the same people that we are. That's part of why they're eternal, right? It's that human beings don't change all that much in terms of our nature and in terms of moving towards pleasure and away from pain and, and all that kind of stuff. But thank you, Judith. Alex? I again have, um, I have a question and a thought. My question is just if you, again, can you give it, provide some context? So these laws were given before the 10 commandments or, or after, or in conjunction, like this covenant after. So at the end of last week's Torah portion, they were at Sinai. Okay. And so I was thinking, I guess, I think it was just last week when we were really talking or two weeks ago about this notion of freedom. And I think that slavery can be absolute. I mean, of course there's human trafficking and slavery today, but it's also the slavery of the mind, which is there is no, you know, emancipation. I mean, there can be, but so many of us are stuck in that, um, enslaved mindset of whatever our, you know, challenges are. So I think this could absolutely even be applied. I mean, it just continues on and on. And so that, that is a very rabbinic position, right? That it's our job to continue to expand what we mean by slavery, right? So in the, in the instance of theft, if you steal, like the rabbis have a whole treatise on if stealing, okay, well, we're used to thinking about that as, as material property. The rabbis say, if you steal someone's time, so you make someone go through their whole condo pitch to you and you have no intention of buying, that is stealing. Not, not if you got three free nights, because then you're kind of you know, making an arrangement. But, you know, you let somebody go through their whole vacuum cleaner pitch and you, you have no intention of buying a vacuum cleaner, then you've stolen their time. If you talk ill of somebody, you've stolen their reputation, right? Or if you're late. Or if you're late, you have stolen someone's time. So so for some people, it sounds ridiculous. Like, oh my God, really? That's really pushing it. That's not what Torah meant. Yitz Greenberg would argue that's exactly what Torah meant. Torah meant for you to figure out in your day, in your time, in your community, in your situation, what does theft really come down to? We don't steal people's stuff so much anymore. Um, but, um, but we do steal from people all the time and the rabbis didn't want to let the concept go of making sure we're not taking from each other what doesn't belong to us. Right. And so I think that's, that it's a critical part of what it means to be in a covenantal relationship. I also, my, I guess my follow-up question would be then, and this is for another time probably, but you know, how, at what point, (laughs) Do we also have an understanding or that we rec- the recognition that with all these rules in place, since we are human, that there's just going to be constant, you know, we are constantly enslaved between these, you know, uh, by these rules in a sense, because yes, I might be late and I really didn't mean it, but that was stealing somebody's time. So then how hard will I be on myself and what, you know, so that the whole piece of forgiveness for oneself and for... I guess just an understanding that there is um, while we have to be accountable to these values and these laws, 
is there room for some forgiveness and for some compassion? Of course. That's why the whole system of tshuva was put in place. The whole, the whole system of repentance was put in place. If I'm late and it was unintentional on my part, I'm not blamed for that. That's not stealing. If you want to get serious about understanding this stuff, then you have to read the whole thing. Like the whole thing would say, if I know I'm supposed to be there at 11 and I choose to finish my TV program instead of showing up at my appointment time, that's stealing time from the doctor, let's say. But if I, if the, if the 405 is jammed and I can't go anywhere, did I try to call? Did I try to tell them I was going to be late? Right. Did I do everything in my power to, to restore that time to them? Yes. Then I, then I'm not held responsible. So when you, it's interesting to me that you use the word enslaved to these laws that's a choice. We're not enslaved by anything. I don't have to do any of this. But, but, but if I'm going to engage with it seriously, then what I'm asked to do is take responsibility. That's all I'm asked to do. I'm not asked to beat myself up because the 405 was jammed. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? So, so you have to take the whole system seriously, not just slavery and you have to do this. That's not the only part of the system. The system has a huge range Right. And actually, what if I'm going to be late to the doctor's appointment because I see somebody with a flat tire? <laughs> right. Or somebody who needs my help at the side of the road. It might be a mitzvah that trumps being on time to help the person on the side of the road. But that's what it means to take this stuff seriously. Is there some values that smack right up against other values? And we have to figure that out all day long, every day. We have to figure out what about when my value of being on time and not stealing someone else's time comes directly up against someone who needs my help. What do I do? That's an evolved human being that, that has a clash of values and then has to figure out which value in this situation trumps the, I I, got to stop using that word. I really do. Which value (laughs) in this situation (laughs) outweighs the other. And that's the work of evolved human beings and evolved cultures and evolved civilizations is yes, we want to give money to everybody, but how do we not incentivize people not to work? That's a fair question, right? We want to support people during COVID, but how do we, how do we not dis um, incentivize people from working? Cause they can make more staying home. Right. I mean, so I'm just saying th- these are the questions an evolved civilization should be debating and should be asking and Torah gives kind of a broad outline for many of those categories. Mark? You know, the capacity for uh, um, uh, cultural, uh, cultural evolution and uh, the capacity for um, change and, and evaluation of conflicting values and so on, all grows out of the capacity for empathy. The capacity for empathy is the same as the capacity for abstraction. So you're taking me where I was wanting to go. I'll try to be, oh crap, we're late. Okay, so um, ah, how did that happen? Okay, because I was a little late. So I, I want to say one thing about what Mark is saying. So all of this stuff about you were strangers in the land of Egypt and blah, 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 blah. Therefore, you, it's about having empathy. And so there was this article I read that was really interesting that said, um, and her name is Tanya Singer, uh, and she did uh, uh, work on empathy and the brain. And contrasting empathy with compassion. And what I thought was interesting is the Hebrew word we use is rachamim, compassion. 
not empathy, which is, and I know this wasn't your point, but I know what you mean, Mark, the, the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and, you know, that, that that's a hugely evolved thing. I totally get that. I agree. Um, I'm just saying it, it makes me think of this article where she said that, that compassion is what we're really looking for uh, to develop, not empathy necessarily, because empathy, and this is why I was, I was thinking of the Hebrew word rachamim, which comes from rechem, womb. So Rachamim is what a parent feels for a child from a position of power, choosing, right, you know, to respond out of, out of compassion means I don't smack my kid when they're annoying, right? I, I choose instead to lean into compassion. That it must be really hard for them right now. They must be really frustrated. They must be hungry. They must be tired, right? Empathy is feeling the feelings of the other. And that in fMRI studies, Tanya Singer uh, in 2004 pioneered some of this work with fMRI, the functional MRI, using couples and looking at what happens in the brain when you study a couple and you're asking the couple, one member of the couple to empathize with the other. And what happens in the brain, apparently, is that places of pain get activated when you empathize with somebody because you're feeling their pain. Mm -hmm. Versus compassion, which activates uh, parts of the brain that are actually uh, involved in uh, affiliation and reward. Mm -hmm. That's very different, right? Think about that. So people who have, who burn out in their profession because they empathize with people, they're very sensitive and they empathize with people and they burn out. Part of that is explained by this research that says that's because you're, you're sitting in feeling people's pain. So first responders, psychotherapists, psychologists, social workers, if they're located too much in empathy, they take on the pain of what's around them. So they might be effective at actually meeting someone where they are, but it doesn't help the therapist who then carries around all of that activated pain. And if they can't do anything to fix the situation, this research tells us, they actually feel worse about the person who brought Mm -hmm. it to them. Whereas compassion says uh, that, that I recognize that this person is suffering and I come out of a place of care and concern and holding that and being with them in that without empathizing. I don't activate my place of pain my place of suffering. Instead, I'm able to hold them with regard and respect and warmth and caring and support and kindness and love. And that that activates the place of affiliation and reward in our brains and and pushes us towards that work, not away from it. So mindfulness practice, 1130. Mindfulness practice is is all about cultivating the capacity for compassion, rather, than, and I'm not saying we shouldn't empathize ever. That's not my point. My point is I found this fascinating because I see it in my own work. I see it in my own life. And I see it right now in so many people around me, right, who are holding so much that if it's empathy we're leaning into, we can come out hurting a lot more and tired and fatigued and exhausted. But if we can c- cultivate our capacity for compassion, including self-compassion, really important ability to have self-compassion that the reward center of our brain is activated. We feel empowered. 
We feel warmth and caring, and we feel a, a concern for others that comes out of a place of um, of love. And and I just think that that's fascinating because I think I think that's an important d- distinction, and I think that's what we're looking to do, and that's what we're looking to be about. And um, there you go. All right. So um, you'll have to read the Yitz Greenberg stuff. I, I don't want to keep you too long, but I, maybe I'll just do the closing sentences of, of his piece, which I just love. He says, I defend the Torah's choice of temporarily incorporating social evils out of the belief that the future ideal world is best realized by the covenantal method. So he's saying he defends that there is still slavery. There is still discrimination against women. There is still exploitation of children. He defends Torah not coming in and saying there's going to be no slavery. There's going to be no poverty. There's going to be no inequity. There's going to be none of that because that system won't work to just throw that on to people and say, this is what you now have to do is not going to work. Redistribute all the wealth in the country so that everybody's equal. Okay. We saw how that's gone. Have we seen how communism has, has been so successful with that? Right. Okay. So partnership with God and between the generations working via gradualism, compromises, respect for human nature and the dignity, even of opponents and never ceasing until complete repair is achieved, may be slower and morally compromised, but it will more likely get to the goal. And he says, I acknowledge the heavy human cost along the way, meaning he feels he gets it, that that means some people are going to die in poverty or of hunger or of disease because there isn't equity. Still, I believe that there is a lesser toll and less human suffering in this method than has been done by the more ideologically driven, more universal, more immediate, totally demanding movements for redemption that have proliferated, particularly in recent centuries. There are also less dead ends or systematic outcomes which totally oppress the people. I think, I think that's fair. I actually think that's super fair. And so he says, this is about sketching the beginning of a long way. Of course, an essential condition for reaching the goal is that the carriers of the covenant never sink into the status quo, never freeze or fossilize the Torah, never sell out to the local civilization along the way. That is why joining the covenant is not limited to those who happen to be at Sinai or in the plains of Moab. This is an open covenant inviting in those standing with us today before Adonai our God and those not with us today who will take up the task next day, next year, next century, next millennium. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.